This is exactly right. This story contains adult content and language, along with references to sexual assault. Listener discretion is advised. We've got somebody abducting women. Same victim type. Same location. Same location, same MO. And at that point, the police really knew we've got a problem. They were simply tricked. The car tires were deflated. And police said, as an alert to women, do not go with anyone if your car tire is deflated. When you get in, check your car, make sure there's no one in the back seat. Really terrifying sort of things to think about. But that was what happened after these murders occurred. I'm Kate Winkler-Dawson, a nonfiction author and journalism professor in Austin, Texas. I'm also the host of the historical true crime podcast, Tenfold More Wicked, as well as the co-host of the new show, Buried Bones, both on Exactly Right. I've traveled around the world interviewing people for the show. I've interviewed some people in person and some from my home studio over Zoom, and they are all excellent writers. They've had so many great true crime stories, and now we want to tell you those stories with details that have never been published. Tenfold More Wicked presents Wicked Words is about the choices that writers make, good and bad. It's a deep dive into the stories behind the stories. South Florida in the 1970s was one of the most dangerous areas of America. And in the mid-1970s, more than a dozen young women were killed and found in canals. These murder cases became known as the flat tire murders and the canal murders, and they were terrible. Police floated several theories, one that involved a very famous serial killer who visited Florida. Author Michael Burns wrote the book, The Flat Tire Murders. Where did you first hear about this story? What sparked your interest in it? I think originally, well, I think it goes back to actually the Golden State Killer, Joseph D'Angelo, in 2018, when he was arrested. I had been following the case for a while. And when that happened, I was just stunned that, you know, a case from 40 years ago could be solved. And it just kind of blew my mind. And then I just came across, I don't know, either a Wikipedia or somebody referenced it online and found out about these cases. And nobody had really looked into it. It had a sort of a meager Wikipedia entry, and that was about it. So I started digging right away in 2020. Where are we in time? I'd say one year in the mid-1970s. I know what Texas in the 70s was like, but what was Florida in the 70s like? I think it was probably a lot like the rest of the country and sort of how it is now. I think with people moving down there, you know, the snowbirds from up north, the immigrants from Latin America had started in the 1960s and still continued through the 70s. So it was an area sort of in flux. It was probably a lot like Texas in the sense that young people then were, I'd say, a lot less cautious about things like hitchhiking or going off with strangers. So a more innocent time, I'd say. And hitchhiking does play a part in this story. Where do we start? We can start with the crime explosion in Florida in the early 1970s. But the crime explosion, I think, was happening all over the United States, right? But particularly in Florida, is that right? Yeah, there was a crime explosion in the United States in the 70s. I think it finally met its apex in the 1980s. There was a big crackdown on crime, and crime since that time has gone down. But in the 1970s, Florida was one of the most dangerous states, and South Florida had exponential crime doubling in some situations. So definitely a big increase in crime in the 1970s in South Florida. Are we able to point to anything? Is it cyclical? Is it economic? 
I think part of it was perhaps based on the economy. I think in the early 1970s, there was a recession at that time. Some of the law enforcement thought it was just a situation where you have a large number of people sort of coming in and out of South Florida, sort of a transient lifestyle to live on the beach and to leave, maybe work in the tourist industry. So I think probably a lot of it was economic. A lot of it was probably based on the more innocent 60s, probably a more liberal or progressive approach to crime. I think there was definitely a different attitude towards crime in the 60s, which transferred into the 70s with sort of the crime explosion and then a crackdown in the 80s. So I think it was cyclical, if I had to say. So do you think at this time period, women in South Florida felt safe or were they taking any kind of precautions? I think they largely felt safe after Ted Bundy was arrested in Florida in 1978. I think probably that post-Bundy era through the late 70s into the 1980s may have been a situation where women were being a lot more careful. But I think in the mid-1970s, it was probably just as free as the 1960s where women felt, I think for a large part, safe. There was a lot of hitchhiking. There was certainly a free attitude that I think was taken advantage of. The first victim in January of 1975 was Judith Osterling, and she was 19 years old, and she had moved to South Florida from Indiana, sort of a, what we were just speaking about, a, a situation where somebody moves to South Florida in an attempt to either reinvent themselves or start a new life. And she was 19, and she found herself living in Dade County and working south of Miami in a massage parlor. So do we know about her day when she disappears? Do we know anything about what happened? We really don't know much other than she disappeared and her body was found the following day. She did have a roommate and she lived sort of a quiet life. There was not much known about her other than the fact that she hitchhiked. She would hitchhike to get to work. She would hitchhike to get around town. So she was, I think, living a very exposed lifestyle. Is she the first one found in a canal? Is that right? She's the first one found in a canal in 1975. And initially, it wouldn't have been more than a sort of one-off case, but there was a series of women found in canals, often very close to one another after that time. She was found in January 1975. Were the canals used by whoever organized crime? Was this sort of a normal dumping ground for people who killed people, not even serial killers? Well, yeah, they were and they still remain a dumping ground for things that people want to get rid of, either from bodies to vehicles that were stolen and insurance fraud. They found missiles and airplane parts and canals and sort of anything that people want to get rid of. Weapons. <laughs> Weapons, yes. Animal sacrifice. Oh my gosh. Bones are found in there. It's really a wild situation. Are there alligators? Yes, there are alligators. There are all kinds of snakes. And South Florida does border the Everglades. So you find alligators in backyards and swimming pools and certainly in the canals. So when Judith's body goes into the canal and it is then recovered, do we have any idea about was there a sexual assault? Do we know the way she died? We do. And that was discovered due to the diligent work of the police. About in October, 10 months after her death, there was a confession that was the result of some interrogation of the woman who owned the massage parlor where Judith worked. Uh, her name was Tiger Sue. That was her nickname. Sue Jane Walter was her name. And she eventually confessed. She was a heroin addict and she confessed under the influence that she and her boyfriend had killed Judith in January of that year after Judith refused to 
to accommodate their sexual advances. Hmm. The boyfriend, Clarence Carnival, was murdered himself. He was killed in June of 1975. That kind of case just gives an example of what I think South Florida was like in the 1970s with the massage parlor, a girl from Indiana, uh, 19 years old, this boyfriend who was uh, involved in drugs who gets murdered. And then this woman, Sue Walters, is left as the last person standing out of all this craziness. And she was eventually sentenced to 15 years in prison. Well, we're talking about a serial killer, but we're starting with a victim who was not one of his victims, but it seems to have sparked fear in the public. So when the real victim of the serial killer goes into the canal, this is what sparks the fear that this is a serial killer. Is that right? Right. And I think really once the bodies start accumulating on sort of a weekly or a monthly basis, law enforcement takes note, the public takes note that something is happening to women. I don't even think the idea of a serial killer was brought up in the papers at that time. But certainly that this was a series of incidents. They even gave them the name, the canal murders. Women were interviewed. Some young girls were scared they were going to end up in the canals or that they had met the canal murderer. So it definitely became an event in 1975 in South Florida. Okay, so Judith is killed in January of 1975. She is one of the women and the girls found in the canals, but her murder is solved. Then we have a series of victims found in the canals before the two murders, and we're calling those the flat tire murders because they have the same pattern. The next series of murders, there's about five murders before the flat tire murders occur. Two of them were 14 years old. One was 19, one was 17. Some were shot, some were strangled. Some, they simply don't know how they ended up in a canal in far western Dayton Broward County, where there was really not a lot. It's right on the border of the Everglades. How these women ended up there, especially the ones that we don't know the cause of death is just quite bizarre. I think a lot of it may go back to Judith Osterling's case, where she was essentially taken to the canal got out of the car, they beat her, and they drowned her in the canal. It was an actual drowning, you know, holding someone underwater in a canal, which is just an awful thing to imagine. But I think that occurred in some of these cases. So we are in a situation right now in 75 where you've got Judith, who was killed in a canal. You've got a series of young girls. Are these young girls all from the same type of socioeconomic background? They were typical middle-class girls. Several of them were 14 years old, middle school and high school students. One of them, Arietta Tinker, was 17 years old. She was married. She had a child. But none of them were involved in drugs or sex work or anything that would put a woman in a more vulnerable situation. A lot of them did hitchhike, and that was emphasized by law enforcement as a real problem and a real vulnerability for women. And none of them knew each other? There's no connection with schools or churches or anything? No, only two of them, Barbara Schreiber and Darlene Zetterauer, were both shot to death and they were 14 years old. They were best friends. But other than that, no, no connections. Is there a connection with sexual assault? Some they thought may have been sexually assaulted. Some were not. Some were found fully clothed with no evidence of sexual assault. So it really varied. Did they collect swabs? They did. And I got the medical reports for three of the victims. And one of them, they did find what I interpret as biological evidence. Whether that was preserved, we don't know. I'm still waiting for the actual police files to be produced. I requested them oh, a year and a half ago. I still haven't received them. So we'll see what those have to say. But I'm kind of confident that I think there is DNA evidence available. 
So let's get to the cases that police say are definitely connected. This killer is unidentified, and these two cases together we're calling the flat tire killer cases, right? Who is the first victim? Ronnie Gorlin. She is the first flat tire victim. She's 27 years old. She's engaged to be married. Her parents are originally from Hallandale and she comes down to visit her mother. She decides to go to the 163rd Street Shopping Center in North Miami and she disappears and she's found the next day dead in a canal with sort of severe injuries and her car is found at the 163rd Street Mall with a flat tire. And what's presumed is that her tire was deflated Somebody came along, offered her help, and abducted her at that point. It just happened to be deflated or someone deflated it for her? It's most likely that it was deflated by the person who abducted her. That's what law enforcement believes. So this is the 70s, so no CCTV or anything like that. No cameras. No, and when police went there attempting to create a composite, talk to people who may have seen the victim with any men, and there were some references to a composite, which is why I'm interested in getting these police files, if they're ever produced, to see exactly what was put together. Yeah, they didn't have CCTV. They didn't have any smartphones or anything. It was basically trying to interview people who may have been there that saw the abduction. And you said this is nighttime? Ronnie Gorlin was in the afternoon. So what was the reaction? Did you get to speak to any of Ronnie's family about any of this? No, family members that I reached out to, I I really didn't get much of a response and I respected that. The people that I did speak with were the three detectives that worked on the flat tire murders cases. They're identified in the book and I, I discussed my interactions with them and their suspect that they still to this day feel is the one who did it. Okay, Ronnie, do we know a cause of death Yes, she had been choked and drowned in the canal. And this canal was at 138th Street in Miami. There were also bite marks noted on her breasts, which led to police later on looking at a number of different suspects based upon that evidence. But yeah, she was choked, drowned, and left in the canal. Bite marks sound like Ted Bundy to me. And he was still alive during this time period. Did they think about Bundy at all for this case? Well, in 1975... Nobody really knew Bundy outside of maybe a few detectives in Utah and Washington, but he wasn't the Ted Bundy that we know of now. But later on, in 1978, actually, when Bundy was arrested in Florida, these detectives immediately put two and two together and said, we got to talk to this guy. We've got to figure out if this Bundy that we just arrested for the Chi Omega murders is the same guy who may have been here in 1975. And the bite mark evidence did not seem to indicate whether Bundy was involved. I can't say conclusively one way or the other, but the detectives to this day still feel that Ted Bundy was the one who committed these crimes. The question is, can Bundy be placed in South Florida in July of 1975? I spoke with Kevin Sullivan, who's written a number of Bundy books that are really good. He doesn't think it's possible. The detectives do think it's possible. I'm sort of in the middle where it could have happened. I'd like to see some solid evidence of him being there. But what a lot of people do don't know about Bundy was he had visited Miami in 1968 as a delegate to the Republican convention, which was held in Miami Beach. Okay. And that was his first trip to Miami. Uh, He was 22 years old. So he had been there before. His trial in 1979 for the Chi Omega murders was in Miami after a change of venue. So the detectives from the flat tire murders case, one of them went to Bundy's jail cell in 1979 and said, I want to talk to you about these flat tire murders cases. And 
his reaction was, according to the detective, like he knew what he was talking about. And he said, after the Kimberly Leach trial, I'll talk to you. And after that trial happened, he was convicted. He never spoke to the detective again. That's interesting. Well, okay, so things about Ted Bundy. He was very manipulative. The last book I did was all about forensics. And bite mark analysis is total junk science. He was caught with bite marks. That's why they were able to arrest him. But it's solely inaccurate And I think Bundy's presence in South Florida is whether he could possibly have been there during that time. I do note in the book that there's a pause in his killing. The last murder he committed in Utah was June 30th of 1975. He was arrested in Utah on August 16th of 75. So you have about a month and a half gap where he's not actively killing anybody. And that could potentially allow him to get somewhere like South Florida. Whether that happened... I don't know. Like I said, I I still don't know if there's any evidence that would place him there. But yes, going back to the bite marks, he was convicted on bite marks. He was convicted on evidence. I believe there was a hypnosis that was used and was later thrown out by, I think, the Florida Supreme Court that said, you can't use this. It's unreliable. So yeah, a lot of his, I think, post-conviction appeals were quite interesting in that he raised a lot of challenges to the evidence that was used to convict him. Of course, it was the best they had at the time, and he certainly was guilty and ultimately confessed. But at the time, yeah, there was no DNA. There was blood pattern, blood types, and fabric typing and matching, I think, was used in the Kimberly Leach case, but that's all they had. Let's get back to Ronnie. So now Ronnie is after Judith in January. She is after the series of young women who are found in the canal, but Ronnie is a standalone as of right now. Is that right? Right. She was murdered on July 22nd of 1975. So sort of right in the summer of 1975, after I think about five or six victims were found in canals, including the two 14-year-old girls, Barbara Schreiber and Darlene Zetterauer, that were found murdered. There was also Robin Loach, who was 14 years old, who was found drowned in a canal on July 10th of 1975. So really young girls all being found in canals, drowned, shot. We don't know cause of death. But certainly something was happening. And when Ronnie's abduction and death occurred, I think that certainly shook people that, hey, something is going on here. Somebody's doing this. This is not an accident. So we've gone from someone disappearing from a massage parlor to young women disappearing to someone being clearly abducted. These other people could have been lured, but Ronnie was clearly abducted. Who is the next person after Ronnie? Well, a week later, Elise Rapp, who was 21 years old, abducted also from the 163rd Street Mall, and her car was found with a flat tire. She was found in the same canal as Ronnie Gorlin. So we're talking about a one-week difference. And this wasn't an abduction of a hitchhiker. It wasn't an abduction of a 14-year-old girl. They were both in their 20s, educated girls. They had families. They were not drug users or, or any kind of vulnerability. They were simply tricked. The car tires were deflated. And police said, as an alert to women, do not go with anyone if your car tire is deflated. When you get in, check your car, make sure there's no one in the back seat. Really terrifying sort of things to think about. But that was what happened after these murders occurred. It's so difficult to think you're at night, potentially, by yourself. You're a woman. It's in the 70s. There's no cell phone. And you come out and your tire is deflated. 
And then what do you do? There's a nice looking person there who is willing to help. I still find it hard to believe that anybody would get into a stranger's car and drive off. But I know that in the 70s, that was just a reality. If you wanted to be safe, it's sort of the lesser of two evils. Do I stand here by myself trying to find a payphone, you know, and hoping somebody's going to help me? Or do I go with someone who seems okay? I mean, is that the right assessment to you? Yeah. And what's really, I think, crazy (laughs) from my research into this subject was that teenage girls were hitchhiking and it was sort of frowned upon and the police said, you know, you really shouldn't do it. But just the fact that 14-year-old girls would be standing on the side of a highway or a road with their thumbs out, hoping to get in a car with a stranger. Back then, it was something that was very common. It was just a way to get around. And there were interviews with girls and they asked, why do you hitchhike? Well, it's a way to get around. I can handle myself. If I see somebody that I don't think is trustworthy. I don't get in. But what happened in the flat tire cases were premeditated, really sinister situations at a mall, like you said, in the dark or in the afternoon where somebody nice looking comes along and says, yeah, I see you got a flat tire. I'll, I'll help you. I'll take you to the service station or get in my car. I'll go uh, fix it, get some help. But it was before Bundy. It was before really we knew that there were sinister, serious serial killers out there. Who looked normal, who did not look like Charles Manson. Right. Somebody who you thought you could spot and then came along Ted Bundy and really changed that for a lot of Americans. Tell me how far apart these canals were where Judith was found and where the young ladies were found versus where Ronnie and Elise were found. Far apart? Long drive? No, I'd say 20 minutes. And that's based Mm -hmm. upon the current traffic in Miami. When I went back to South Florida to visit my family a couple months ago, I deliberately set out to go see these canals to see where they're located. They're within about 20 minutes. The canal next to US 27 is to this day very desolate and isolated, just next to some sugarcane fields and some airboats and you know part of the Everglades. The canals where Ronnie Gorland and Elise Rapp were found were in a more urban area, urban slash suburban. They're next to a city in South Florida known as Medley, and it's an industrial city with a lot of trucks trucks going in and out of that area. And I found it somewhat interesting that the city of Medley was right next to where these bodies were found. Could there have been a truck driver passing through? Again, these cases were never solved. So you get the idea that maybe this person or persons moved on and got out of the area. Going to visit the canals, I I stood next to where Ronnie Gorlin and Elise Rapp were found. And it's just a peaceful canal out next to a street in Dade County. And the canal out by US 27 is just very isolated. I can imagine what it was like 45 years ago, completely in the middle of nowhere. I was just writing about this, about visiting, how important it is to visit locations for authors to be able to build that world. And obviously, you feel the same way I do. You just have to be there. How do you explain that? How important is it to you to stand at the place where one or two of the victims have been found? I think it's very important. And that was one of the problems when I wrote the book was during 2020 when getting there from California was going to be a problem. So finally, earlier this year, I was able to get out there and get it done. But it was something I had wanted to do since day one to actually see the locations, to get a feel for where these crimes occurred. And like I said, I wouldn't have put two and two together with the city of Medley unless I was standing at that canal noticing all the trucks going by. And I thought, wait a minute, that's the city right over there. It's a big urban trucking area. So sometimes you just have to be there, I think. Are these areas that locals would need to know or could a truck driver know precisely where to go? You said a couple were isolated, right? Yeah, the canal next to US 27, where a number of these victims were found, is really isolated. And when I drove down there, 
I realized the only reason you're driving on this road is either to get north into Central Florida or to come down from Central Florida into South Florida. There's really no other reason to be out there. So this could have been somebody who decided this is a remote area. It could have been somebody that was a trucker that was on his way up to Central Florida and decided this is a good place. I think that this was selected by a local, by someone who knew the area as a convenient, out-of-the-way location to dump these bodies. And in 1977, there was a case where a man abducted a young girl and took her right up to the canal on US-27. Thankfully, he was caught in the act by a state trooper. But I think the killer of these girls deliberately chose these areas. I think they knew the areas. So does anything happen after the murder of Elise? Is that the end of these two that seem really tightly connected? After Elise Rapp in the summer of 1975, there were a number of other victims. I identified four after Elise Rapp. Uh, That would be Marlene Annabelli, who was 26, Mary Coppola, who was 15, Michelle Winters, who was 17, and another possible victim, Annie Mims, who was 31. But these were other canal victims. They weren't flat tire. That ruse was not used again, only on those two victims. But the bodies continued to be found in canals. And like I said, Mary Coppola was 15, Michelle Winters was 17. These were very young girls. And I was kind of shocked that it didn't get front page attention. It was mentioned and there were discussions about these cases, but my goodness, 14-year-old girls, 15-year-old girls, 17, these are teenage high school students. It's really just shocked me and kind of outraged me that these girls were so young. Were these of every race and socioeconomic background or one in particular? They were all white females. What's interesting about the two flat tire murders is that they were both Jewish. Ronnie Gorlin and Elise Rapp, whether that makes a difference or not, who knows? They also both had e-license plates, which were license plates from the state of Florida that denoted that the car was a rental or a leased car. So there were those similarities. But in terms of the socioeconomic, a couple of them were married. Ronnie Gorlin was engaged. Some of them had children, some didn't. Some were just teenage girls. Michelle Winters, she dropped out of high school, but she came from a wealthy family. So just all sorts of backgrounds, but none that were particularly disadvantaged or people that were involved with drugs or other similar issues. They were typical middle-class girls. So the list you just gave me, Marlene, Mary, Michelle, and Annie, how are you picking out characteristics from them that makes you think they are connected to the person who did the flat tire murders? Well, the fact that they were found in canals, I think, is an important aspect to linking them together. The fact that they were all either abducted or went along with an abductor voluntarily. You know, Mary Coppola disappeared on her way to visit a counseling center. Michelle Winters had left her home and was hitchhiking. And these women are all ending up in canals. Michelle was strangled with her own purse strap. And the fact that also that law enforcement believed that somebody's targeting these young girls in South Florida and the fact that these canals are being used as dumping grounds is really something that I thought was pertinent to putting these cases together. There are too many victims, too many bodies for that many individuals to think that the canals would be a great dumping ground. It has to be at least one or two different people, we're thinking, right? Right. And there were no suspects at the time. Police were basically interviewing people, seeing if there were any possible composites they could come up with. And Really, no one was identified. They did profile who they thought may have been involved in the case, but nothing ever came of it. There were no arrests. Tell me about the profile. So what, the FBI, the Behavioral Science Unit came down? Or is this a local police profile? 
This was a local police profile. The FBI wasn't involved in South Florida. That's crazy. I know that we didn't really have the term serial killer until, yes, the 70s, but really it became more well-known in the 80s. But we did say multiple murderer. This was not unheard of. I don't understand why they wouldn't call the FBI down to try to make these connections. What happened? Well, yeah, and that's, like I said, I I couldn't believe the age of these victims, 14, 15-year-old. That's just absolutely shocking. I don't think the FBI at the time had really developed. This was sort of the inception of their behavioral science unit and their idea that we can profile these people and come up with profiles of how this person might act. But there was a local attempt by law enforcement to profile, which I think was quite interesting. They believed it was a well-spoken, well-dressed person, not a creeps somebody that these girls would be willing to go with. And I definitely believe that this person had a vehicle and it was somebody who could pick up hitchhikers and get them to go with them. It was probably a local as well because simply the areas where these girls were found, I think were deliberately selected as out-of-the-way areas. So I have a question about the canals. It's an awful lot of bodies to be discovered. I would have thought it would not be that difficult to weigh down a body. And by the time something floated up and it was to be discovered, an alligator would have gotten to it. It just seems like they're all sort of discarded without having too much of a cover-up. Does that sound right to you? Yeah, and I think the canals were used as an area to dump bodies. And one of the detectives from California commented when he was potentially linking some cases in California to South Florida, canals in South Florida are basically like the roads out west. In the desert. Yeah, the desert. They're just the available places. So that's what's used. I think there may be something more to it. I think also the person may have known that water does destroy evidence. Mm. It's very damaging to forensic evidence. Whether the body's weighed down or not, I don't know if that makes a difference, but I certainly think that putting a body in water is an attempt to do away with certain types of evidence. So this probably is a sophisticated person. You know what I didn't know, though, until I talked to Paul Holes on his podcast about this, I didn't realize that a body submerged in water, if it has biological evidence like semen in it, it can still be recovered. I just thought, oh, it's a lost cause. And he said, no, if they recovered it, it is preserved for at least a while until the rest of the body breaks down. So I'm crossing my fingers for you with the biological evidence because I think that would be great. But is now the theory that this is a traveling serial killer? Because I'm hearing you talk about California. Did he go out west? Well, the police in South Florida were so desperate to get a lead on this person that they began putting two and two together with some cases out in California that are known as the Santa Rosa Hitchhiker murders. And these were a number of murders out in the early to mid-70s that still are unsolved to this day. So South Florida consulted with Sonoma County Sheriff's Department and kind of put a not a profile together, but they asked whether it was possible for this person to have moved from West down to South Florida. They thought it was possible, but again, there was nothing concrete linking the cases together other than the profile of the victims and the fact that they were being found discarded, not buried, but on the side of the road, either in a canal or or off on the side of the road in California. And it sounds like the only thing that's going to solve that is DNA. Yeah, I think so. And that goes back to what we were talking about with Joseph D'Angelo. The fact that DNA could still be preserved from cases that were from 40 plus years ago is so remarkable and so amazing that I think that it is a possibility. Ronnie Gorlin and Elise Rapp, I think given that they were found in water, 
but they were found the next day. So going back to what you said about preserving biological evidence, I think definitely that's a lot better than a body that's found two weeks later in a field or, or in water. So they were found fairly quickly. It appears that there is biological evidence from the medical examiner's reports. What's being done with that and the status of that, we don't know at this time. So you had Ronnie, Elise, a series of young women before. You had Judith and you had Marlene and Mary and Michelle and Annie. When does this stop? Well, I really put the end of it as the death of Michelle Winters. She was 17. She disappeared December 30th, 1975, and she was found a couple days later, strangled. And after that, it really seems to stop. There seemed to be no more young women dead in canals in 1976. Why it stopped, we can all speculate on what happened. But really, after 1975, this epidemic of girls being killed and thrown in canals ends. There are still deaths, there are still murders that occurred, but nothing that fits this pattern. So you have a year, a solid year, right? From January until December 30th, you have a solid year of young girls and young women ending up in this canal. They all have arguably similar methods of being killed. Some are drowned and some are shot, but many could have been sexually assaulted. They're all sort of in that, I mean, we're not talking about older women, right? There's no one, and I mean older as in I'm in my 40s, so nobody, nobody my age. And so it seems like a very, very remote possibility that these aren't all somehow connected or the majority aren't connected. Does that seem right to you? Absolutely. I, I think just the geographical area, the profile of the victims and the time that we're dealing with, the course of a year, I think all put together absolutely indicates that somebody was targeting these young women and it occurred in South Florida and, and then it seems to have stopped. Whether it started up somewhere else sort of remains to be seen. But I think the epidemic of girls being murdered and found in canals in South Florida ended with the death of Michelle Winters. And it began in January of that year, and it just progressively got worse up until December. And what happened after that time, we don't know, but I think it ended with Michelle Winters' death. Have the families of any of these victims pressured police over the past four or five decades? At the time, there was plenty of pressure from parents. But recently, I'm not aware of anybody, at least publicly, pressuring for these cases to be solved. And that goes back to what we talked about at the beginning. There was very little on these cases. Uh, there was a Wikipedia page. I think maybe a couple of true crime podcasts and sort of read some newspaper articles and kind of gave a very, very brief overview. But that's it. You won't find much on these cases out there. So I'm sure that the families have been in touch with law enforcement, but at least publicly, these cases have really fallen way, talk about cold, these are ice cold cases. What is your feeling about what happened with this guy? Do you think that he moved? Do you think he is connected to the Santa Rosa cases? Like we said with Ted Bundy, I try to take a neutral position on whether he was involved. I don't know. I don't know if he could have been traveling from Utah to South Florida and then back in six weeks. It's possible. But I think it's definitely someone very similar to that profile of Ted Bundy. Somebody that's attractive, that's comfortable speaking with women. And I also think, and this goes back to Joseph D'Angelo, that the possibility that this was a law enforcement official or a police officer or someone in a position of authority to get these girls to come with them, I think is a possibility. And it's something that needs to be looked at. 
my uh, stepfather was born in 52. So he would be in his 60s-ish now. So it would be interesting to think, I've said this before, it never occurred to me that a serial killer can kind of age out of serial killing. They just get tired or there are life circumstances that change. How many women are we talking about in total from that one year? It's more than 30, is that right? My indication for the flat tire murders and the canal murders is that we have 13 victims. I think three of them are 14 years old. That's just in that limited one-year period. There were a series of murders in 1973. There was the Miami Strangler in the late 60s, early 70s. This is just one of three series of murders that I've identified in South Florida between the 1960s to 1975. So if you subscribe to the theory that Ted Bundy killed Ronnie and Elise, then you have to lift those two out of the canal murders because Bundy wasn't there for the rest of those murders. So what's more likely, Ted Bundy killed those two and someone else killed all of the rest? Or Ted Bundy didn't kill either of them and someone else or multiple people killed everybody and they're all connected? That's the conundrum we're left with. Personally, I lean against Ted Bundy being there just yeah. geographically. It's a long distance. He had his little Volkswagen, but I doubt he was spending days and days driving. But on the other hand, I have to respect the opinions of the detectives who work these cases that to this day, 40 plus years later, feel that Bundy was the perpetrator. I've got to give them a degree of deference to their opinions. Could it have been him? It could have been. Was it him? I don't know. I'm not too inclined to believe that. But I think certainly that somebody of his make, of his mindset, was the one who committed these crimes. Well, the ruse actually does sound like him, like how he pretended he had a broken arm and asked for help. That actually does make some sense. But I think what's frightening is to think that there could be just one person responsible for that many deaths of women and that they were never caught. And they are likely still alive. They're just in their 60s. So that's difficult for me to fathom that this was something that happened in a time period where there was a lot of media. There was interest in murder. This was passed in cold blood. So true crime was still becoming more popular. I just don't understand and why there wasn't more publicity around this. More people just didn't care. Like I said, it's shocking that you could have a, a number of 14-year-old girls murdered and found in canals and not have it as prominent as I think it would be today. I would think if this sort of series of murders were to occur today with young victims like this, it would be nonstop media attention. Back then, I think given the situation with crime at the time, police, I think, were overwhelmed with the number of crimes that they were having to solve and to be involved in. Yeah. The media probably was trying to keep pace with all of the other crimes and events. And these were just more murders. They were just more cases that got a little bit of attention and new news came along and they sort of fell by the wayside. But I think when we take a step back and we look at it from today's perspective, this definitely was a series of murders that occurred in a very distinct time period with a very distinct victim type. So at least today, I think with 40 years perspective, 45 years perspective, we can see sort of what we're seeing now. What is your hope here with this case, with these cases? My only hope is that we'll get public attention on these cases. Where that leads, 
I don't know. I'm not a public official or have any influence other than letting people know that these cases occurred, that they're still unsolved, and giving the best that I can in terms of information as to what happened, what evidence is available, and just getting the public to be aware that these cases are still unsolved. Where that leads, I don't know. I hope it's to, that these cases will be solved. And if D'Angelo, I think, shows anything, it's that it can't be solved. I think that's interesting because in 2016, when the Golden State Killer case was still unsolved, the California Department of Justice said with a big press conference, we are still looking at these cases. These cases are still unsolved. We are not reopening them, but we are bringing public attention to them. And then two years later, he's caught You know, in 2018. So I'm hoping that public attention will eventually somehow lead to these cases being solved. Well, as we know from the Golden State Killer case, all it takes is one diligent writer to keep plugging away at it and get that public attention. So I wish you the best of luck with that. Thank you. I really appreciate it. And this book is really dedicated to the victims and they are not forgotten. On the next episode of Wicked Words, Kendar Blake on true crime inspiring fiction. Let's talk about Charlie's record so far. So there is the gas station attendant seven weeks earlier, right? Yes. We have her mother, her stepfather, her younger sister who are killed. Then you've got an old man who's killed and then two teenagers. Does this end sometime soon? No, that brings us to seven victims and we have to get all the way to 11. Oh, gosh. My new book, All That Is Wicked, is available now, including the audiobook. All That Is Wicked is based on our first season of Tenfold More Wicked. You might think you know the whole story of killer Edward Ruloff's crimes, but there's so much more. My book, American Sherlock, is also available. This has been an exactly right Tenfold More Media production. The producer is Alexis Amorosi. Our mixer is Ryo Baum. Curtis Heath is our composer. Nick Toga did the artwork. Ilsa Brink designed the website. The executive producers are Georgia Hardstark, Karen Kilgariff, and Danielle Kramer. Follow Wicked Words on Instagram and Facebook at Tenfold More Wicked and on Twitter at Tenfold More. And if you know of a historical crime that could use some attention, especially if it happened in your family, email us at info at tenfoldmorewicked.com. We'll also take your suggestions for true crime authors for Wicked Words. Follow Tenfold More Wicked presents Wicked Words on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you like to listen so you don't miss an episode. If you like what you hear, rate and review the show.